Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. We actually have Megan Rogers, who's on the other side of this console here, laughing at my introduction. You, you didn't like my introduction? I felt a bit scared, to be honest. <laughs> oh, dear. What have I got myself in for? <laughs> it was a bit of a riff on, um, you know, the old Marlowe type. Yeah. Uh, and I thought I'd, I'd try something oh, different. Oh, lovely. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> because we were trying to attract a bit of interest. But the, the, the thing wrong with it, it doesn't have the uh, Lisa or Jan's voices in there, which I think we need to get a <laughs> bit of an equal spread. But Megan... The Heart is a Star. That's your novel, and it's just come out? It has, yes. It's been out for a, few, a couple of weeks now. And it's been well-reviewed, I believe. <laughs> it has. I've been very fortunate that it's got a little bit of coverage and some reviews in the Australian and some other places. Right. And now, you described it to me in the green room just before oh we came on. <laughs> a crossover <laughs> literary commercial. I'm, I'm a bit confused here, Lisa. Um, yeah, I guess, um, you know, that's sometimes how we describe novels which have a broad readership, um, so that if you like books which are maybe a little bit more literary or lyrical in style and nature, um, or you like kind of page-turning commercial, it's there's something in there for everyone, we, we like to think. <laughs> well, yes, it, if you can find your own level at, at which to engage. But basically, we have Layla, who's gone to the west coast of Tasmania. She has. Uh, in some ways, to would I be wrong to say save her mother? Yeah, Nora? that's a great way to put it, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, now... Let's start with the west coast of Tasmania okay. and that setting because it yeah. would have a role to play in the story. Yeah, it does. That's actually a really good way to describe it as having a role to play because I I think I see the weather and the landscape as a character in the book and it often mirrors how the characters are feeling and the plot is developing. And so I, in many ways the west coast of Tassie was chosen just because it is so rugged and wild. But it's undisciplined. It's it is, yeah, uncontained it is. It is. or uncontainable. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So, so how does it link to your characters, oh, Layla and Nora? That is a really good question. Um, and so <laughs> I think that that uncontained word, that's a great word. I haven't actually used that yet, so I'm going to totally steal it. <laughs> uncontained. And I think that's bang on. So one of the things that I really wanted to write about was, you know, messy, complicated women that contain multitudes, you know, lots of different people within them often and they're many things for many people. And so part of what the book is about is being, you know, middle-aged, sandwiched between kind of children and parents and finding yourself in a place where the identity that you've created for the first part of your life doesn't necessarily work for the second half. And so she does become quite, um, you know, she's not contained anymore. She's not contained by the constraints of those masks and by the lies she finds out that they were lies of her childhood. But also then, your parents determine your life as a child, your identity. Mm -hmm. You've got to find your own identity. But then you end up having to look after your parents. And yeah. they perhaps aren't necessarily the people you thought they were. Yeah, that's exactly. And I think, too, one of the questions that I 
asked in the novel was, you know, how do we look after people who didn't look after us? You know, how do we do that as adults? And I think one of the unravelling um, that happens, you know, later on, because there are a few big plot twists, uh, the what she believes is essentially turned on its head. You know, that uh, all those... Um, I guess, decisions that she made growing up were based upon, as you say, her parents and who she thought they were. But then what happens if you realise that none of that was true? You know, how do we then form a new, more authentic identity? But she's a very successful woman. She's an anaesthetist. How do you say that word on radio without getting your tongue tied? People keep cursing me for choosing that as an anaesthetist. Anaesthetist. You know, I think she's outwardly successful. And, and, you know, we... I think she climbs this ladder in her life. You know, she collects the things, she ticks the boxes. She, you know, she gets the good job that's like her father's. Her father was a doctor and she gets the picket fence and the house and the marriage and the family. And then, you know, I think she realizes that she's been climbing this ladder and climbing this ladder and she gets up there and she looks out and I think she realizes that she, you know, she put the ladder up against the wrong wall in, in some ways. But how are, you, how are we to know? Yeah, well, this is it, right, isn't it? Yeah, as, no. as children. Yeah. But then, well, uh, is it a twist? Can I uh, not necessarily give it away? <laughs> Her father? And mm. where's he? So we find out that he has passed away, but we don't know what has happened. And we do know that Layla wants to and has always wanted to know the truth about what happened to her father. And so we know that that is going to be revealed, hopefully, at some stage in the novel, which it is. And both that and what happened around his death and the roles that other people played in that event, that shapes greatly her perception of herself and her past and what she's going to do in the future. And would it be fair to say that her mother, Nora, is troubled? She is troubled, yeah. I think that you would you would say that she has experienced mental illness in her life. But I also, you know, a lot of my research and other work is in women's madness and literature. And I've always, you know, really liked, uh, liked is maybe the wrong word, I have appreciated the idea that sometimes what we call, you know, madness and mental illness is really just a justifiable response to an insane world. Well, yeah, who, who is mad? What is mad? That's right. When you get uh, a world that is not necessarily stable. Exactly. How do you respond and react to exactly. it? Exactly. And exactly. also then the the security, the familiarity of the picket fence and the 2.5 children and all of that, when you discover that that could be a fiction, mm. how do you respond? That's how do you right. react to those sorts That's of things? Right. Well, I think in, in, you know, immediately, I think you lose your mind a little as well because everything that you held dear and hold, held tight to, you know, Pema Chodron calls it like that groundless feeling. You just feel completely groundless. But uh, would that mean we're all alone? If we're all individually struggling yeah. with that image, are yeah. we all a community, <laughs> which is collective, <laughs> yeah. but working in isolation within mm, that community? That is such a good question. And I think I would say yes and no. So I think that in, in the story and I think possibly in life, there is a certain amount that we have to figure out by ourselves. You know, we, we have to figure out our own truths and what we want and need. And I think in many ways, you know, women in general, and Layla is one of them, they get to a point in their life where they've never really asked themselves what they really want and need. And so there is a discovery of those things. Well, how much of that is what society yeah. imposes That's on right. women yeah. so that they've got to forego themselves 
for their husband, for their children, mm-hmm. uh, and you know the pressure. You've also got to have a career. Don't forget. I know that's that. everything. And, yeah, and that's right. but now here's a, a, a delicate, challenging question. Ooh, okay. Could could we say it's the same for men? Oh, that's a great question. Um, this is going to get me into <laughs> choppy, as choppy as the West Coast of Tasmania waters. But I will say that. You know, I think whenever you're looking at a generalized body of people in the world, I think that, you know, the the issues that they have dealt with as a, a body of people are different than others. And I think men have their own, you know, I'd, I don't think it's necessarily easier, but I just think it's different mm. based upon history. That engagement with establishing an identity Correct. is the same for all of us. That's Even right. though it's humans, yeah, it's humans. we have to find yeah. different paths, different right. answers to That's it. That's right. Now, I did begin by talking about a crossover, <laughs> literary, commercial. It's a, a, a wonderful phrase that that publishers sort of come up with. <laughs> but what would you say then were the literary aspects? And this actually ties in with yeah. your background, having taught creative writing. Yeah, yeah, I I love teaching creative writing. I taught creative writing at RMIT, and you know I've done a PhD in in writing and taught literary studies. So there is an element of me that loves to read. I'm a reader, and I love to analyse text and look at you know the meanings and the the devices, as you say, that have been used. And so I think for me, you know, when I'm sitting down to write, and this is just a personal, I guess, um, you know, opinion, when I'm thinking about the literary aspects of the novel, you know, it is about um, not necessarily creating likeable characters, complex characters, dealing, you know, possibly with deep, complex themes uh, in society. And also too, you know, I remember someone saying to me that, um, what we call literary fiction, and, and I know that sometimes those labels are, can be limiting or misleading, but but I think, you know, labels sometimes help us navigate the world as well. And so, um, you know, they often say that literary writing is bittersweet. So there is always a bittersweetness to it, a bit like life. And I didn't want to look away to the bit from the bitter, you know. I wanted to to look at it the way that we all live it every day. Would you say there was a um, particular favourite literary device that you have employed? <laughs> uh, that is a great question. Um, look, I think I do love my metaphors. <laughs> I'm uh, not going to lie. <laughs> um, I'm always um, reluctant to bring that up because I think they can be overused. Yes. Yeah, they've, they've got to fit in. They've got to flow. They've yeah. got to be part of the fabric. Yeah. And unfortunately, when we teach literature, and that's my <laughs> background, having taught literature, yeah. you know, because you're breaking it open and pulling out these elements, it mm. becomes too clinical? Yes, yes, I totally agree with that. Rather yeah. than it sort of sweeping that's right. over you. So yeah. a, a lot of what you, the impression you have of a, a piece of writing mm. is how it flows over you. You don't actually say, oh, yes, that's a metaphor, that's, that's a simile. Right. Yeah. It, it works on you. That's right. Like music, it yeah, has an yeah. effect. Yeah, that's a, right. And the same with the, the lyricism of a line yeah, as well. Yeah, that's right. That's that's so, such a beautiful description. And I often think about it. I've got a daughter who's a swimmer, and she's uh, quite a good butterfly swimmer. Now, I know as her parent all the elements that go into that stroke, but when I watch her across the pool, I just enjoy it because it looks effortless. Hmm. And I think that's our goal, isn't it? Well, 
Well, it's 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 poetry in and of itself. Mm. You know, the same with the um, you know, dare I mention sport? When you mm. see a passage of play, it's yeah. poetry in, in motion. motion. It seems to work. It seems to yeah. connect. Yeah. And then they miss the gold. At the end, but, you <laughs> yes. know, that's that's life in general. Yeah, exactly. Look, Megan, we're going to have to end the interview there. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's Megan Rogers, the author. The novel is The Heart Is a Star. It got a great review in <laughs> the Australian, which mentioned the sex scenes, which we didn't get. <laughs> On to, um, they were called erotic. So do pick up a copy. It's from Harper Collins. And uh, Megan, thank you very much uh, for coming in today. Armando Lucas Correa creates a poignant insight into the lives of four related women as they struggle to survive the political and social ideologies of their times in the night travellers. So, Armando, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Now, Ali likes jazz. She's one of the first uh, individuals we come across, and she's, in fact, in love with a young jazz player. She even goes out at night despite the spectre of a vampire killer hanging around the city. But it is Berlin it's 1931. What are the problems she is facing? Well, I'm trying to do a parallel because, you know, she grew up in the in, in Dusseldorf with all these crises. You know, and, and what's real, the, the presence of the vampire, this is the theme based in the M movie from the 40s and 30s. And I, I was thinking, okay, she was fighting against something that is not real because the vampire was like a shadow. And then in a couple of years, she has to fight with a real one vampire, you know, and trying to create this... Well, Nazism was that vampire. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. because, you know, the idea when Hitler uh, took power, you know, Germany, it was a chaos. They have a vampire, but at the same time, the economy, it was really down. But she's also in love with a jazz player, Marcus, and there's a problem there. Remember, during the 20s, it was like they, they live a kind of freedom after the First World War. And, you know, Ali played with the freedom and being loved with this musician that he was black. And the beginning, it sounds cool for them, you know, with her friends and walking around, going to this club in Dusseldorf. But then the Nazi arrive and everything changed. Yeah. And also then the notion of jazz, which is free, it's abstract, mm-hmm. which was even in the art um, sort of aberration was expunged. Mm-hmm. But the other interesting thing is I think it was Marcus's friend, who was also black, couldn't even find a home in America. So we've got ideologies right across the, yeah. the world which limit people. If you know, during the 20s, many writers from England, by the way, and New York, and musicians from New Orleans, they arrived in this kind of Berlin that it was magic during the 20s. That was a reality of the, the First World War. And, and Berlin was the capital of Europe at that moment, you know. And to think that that could all just disappear because of an ideology. In a blink. But what we have is Lilith as the offspring of uh, Ali and Marcus. And in some ways this brings us to the notion of the night traveller because she's got to hide. She can only go Mm -hmm. out at night in some ways Mm -hmm. because she's a mixed-race child. Uh, Ali's a poet and she's writing all the time and then Lily is going to be seven years old 
she had to do the impossible to save her. And, you know, the Nuremberg race law, it was, I think it was in 1933 exactly when Hitler designed this magical law. And it said that if you're a child, a Michelin child, mixed race, uh, you have to be sterilized or going to the concentration camp. And then Lily is starting dreaming how she's going to save her daughter. At the beginning, they were running in the middle of the park at nine, uh, trying to avoid the Nazis and the people on the street. And she realized that she had to leave the country. Yeah. And she's got to give up her child. Mm. This leads to Lilith finding her way to Havana with the help of a Jewish couple. So now we've got somebody who is of mixed race, but also religion, finding a home in Havana. But now there are problems with a rising political ideology mm-hmm. in Cuba. I'd like to play in this book, uh, because, you know, in the night, the daughter Stella and the German girl, there are always the Jewish people saved by the Christian. And in this case, it's a, a Jewish couple saving a Christian girl. You know, I, I play with that. And at the same time, we have the MS St. Louis, you know, the ocean liner with over 937 Jewish refugees in this book, like a leitmotif. It's simple. You know, it's only, you know, Lily go to Havana in the St. Louis. And that was an actual event. And, and some were turned away. So it's just by chance that Lulin manages to survive. But now you have the Batista regime mm-hmm. in Cuba. And it's interesting. I've got preconceived ideas about Nazism, good and bad. You don't generate that sense mm-hmm. about Cuba. You just let that play mm-hmm. out. And what we have is Lilith and Martin. And Martin works for the Batista regime. Mm-hmm. Of course, political ideology comes to the fore again. Mm-hmm. And that leads to Nadine mm-hmm. and her, she being displaced as well there. Mm-hmm. So was that deliberate not to have any assumptions or judgment being made about the rise yeah. of communism in Cuba? Uh, I started with France in the first act of the book because France is a Nazi, but he's a completely different Nazi that you always see in the movies. He's gorgeous. He's an Adonis. He's, he's a poet. He's studying at the university. Uh, you know, he's in love with Ali, and Ali has a black daughter. And uh, at the beginning of the book, you see a relationship between France and Lilith. Uh, he's a kind of savior for, uh, for her. And then in Cuba, I'm using, you know, I grew up in the dichotomy in my family. My grandmother, uh, she was again Batista. Batista was a terrible dictator. And for my grandfather, he saw Batista as a savior of the economy and the democracy in Cuba. Because, you know, we have two Batista. The first Batista is during the 40s. He wrote the, the Constitution from 1940. That is the one that we have right now. But in 1952, he did a coup d'etat. And then he became a dictator. But he disintegrated the Congress. He eliminated the Constitution. And that provoked the revolution in 1959. But no judgment... Because it's what is happening to the individual. Exactly. That yeah. is Nothing is black and white, yeah, you know, yeah. is important. But now this leads to their offspring, Nadine, being displaced, having to find refuge in America. Yeah. But she finds it with a couple called the Taylors. <laughs> and now we have um, an interesting irony because Mrs. Taylor, 
What's her background? Well, you know, sometimes uh, reality is stronger than fiction. And I remember when I was studying, you know, the Operation Peter Pan that brought 14,000 children to America without their parents with the help of the Catholic Church. I found that many of these couples who adopted these children, they were completely different than what you expect. No? And reading a couple of articles in the New York Times, I found out this uh, Nazi woman who was deported during the 70s uh, to Dusseldorf. And for me, it was fascinating uh, trying to understand this couple. That at the same time, who is bad and who is good, who is evil, because, uh, you know, uh, for her husband, she paid her dues because she wasn't yelled for a couple of years after coming to America. And then she's going to be processed again. And, and that was true. It was the longest trial ever. But it's interesting because she's helped Nadine on the mm-hmm. one hand, but she was found guilty of atrocities. But can you blame the German people? It, it's one of those imponderable That's, questions that remains. But this is one of the theory developed by, you know, Hannah Arendt, the philosopher. She wrote about the trial of Eisen in, in Israel. And she talked a lot about the banality of evil. And all these people, and think about it, most of the Germans that survived the war, they belong to the Nazi. They, they were part of the party in, in a way. But now what's interesting is Nadine finds herself back in Germany, where Ali began, but she's blamed in many ways. A woman shouts, made Nadine turn for a moment. The woman pointed a finger at her as if accusing her. She spat out a phrase in German in an accent Nadine couldn't place, a disgusted expression on her face. Her words throbbed like an echo. Nadine felt her body burning. Another phrase, clearer now. Now back by her father's side to stop herself from falling, she leaned against her father's shoulder. He was swaying too, and she wanted to throw her arms around him to keep him stable, but she couldn't. They were standing on the dividing line between the living and the dead. Around them cars passed in both directions. Behind them, the mob. Nadine prayed she could open an imaginary door, as she had once dreamed back in Maspeth, when she wanted to get rid of the nightmares. A door she needed to open, a door. If she found one, would she get through by herself? Nadine is being made accountable for the sins of the fathers, so to speak. Yeah. And she's the daughter of the monster, someone screaming at her. Yeah. And yet she's not. She's yeah. an adopted yeah. daughter, but she's an amalgam of race, religion, ideology. She's all of those and nothing at the same time. Underneath, yeah. she's a person. And the father, you know, someone that for me is unbelievable is the father. And I was fascinated about the devotion that this man has you know, his wife, and he dedicated, you know, his, uh, his last year of his life to her. Yeah. Well, he was an American serviceman. Exactly. Who yeah. met her and married her. One of the liberators of, of Germany. Yeah. yeah. But now feels responsible for mm-hmm. her. And imagine the situation he'd find himself in. This leads us then to Luna, who is Nadine's mm-hmm. offspring. Luna, the moon, bringing light to all of these situations and what we see and we can't give it away I think Mm. um, it's the responsibility of the listener and the reader to find this Mm. out for itself Luna and Nadine actually find these connections Mm. that go as far back as Ali which includes 
poetry and mm -hmm. the importance in some ways of culture and literature and all of those elements that make us who we are, really. If you, if you see friends, you know, the gorgeous Nazi, that he was evil, he was the one who saved all the poetry and all the, uh, the Alice test, you know. Uh, at the end, they have this kind of connection. And I play with the name, as you see, you know, Luna is moon and Lily is light for someone and for the other one is darkness, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the bent of your culture. And Lily, I think she tried to forget uh, his past, you know. Even Nadine is another one that she blocked everything too, you know. Even she feels like she's responsible to bring all this evil from the Nazi and be condemned, I think, uh, fighting with a piece of brain that you remember in the lab. But it's Lu Luna, the one who is in peace with her past, I think. But it takes several generations for oh, that yeah. to happen. It's always like that. Now, there are several plot twists, as I said, uh, which are some of which are unexpected, but I'm not going to give them away. This whole notion of how we address and survive as an individual, despite mm -hmm. the ideologies of the society we live in and the expectations, is quite poignant, as I said at the beginning, and how people uh, manage to lead their lives despite the pressures they are facing. And if the listener wants to find out more... The book is The Night Travellers. The author is Amando Lucas Correa. And it's a Simon & Schuster release. So, Amando, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you very much. Today.